You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. All right. Thank you, deep voice person with the funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, and you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is that show. We're coming to you from the headquarters of the Office of Cable Television, Film, Music, and Entertainment, which is also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television. So it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the Council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You might also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of DC. If you don't follow us already, please do so immediately. It's okay, I'll wait. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We wanna make it easier for average residents to understand what the Council does demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the DC Council is just like your workplace, except with the dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, and formal and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. So thanks again for tuning in, and without any further ado, let's uh, turn to our, to our guest, uh, Councilmember Alyssa Silverman at large. How are you doing, Councilmember Silverman? Oh, great to be here, Josh. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, the, this first round of interviews we're doing with the council members are a little more on the sort of biographical getting to know you side. Okay. So my understanding is you're from Baltimore. And I don't think that city pair gets enough conversation. New York and D.C., That there's always that debate, that rivalry. Baltimore and D.C., had, have, talk a little bit about that. They're mm. so close together. They're so different. They're kind of similar. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of that sort of frenemy thing like there is with New York. Mm-hmm. T- talk about being someone who's, who's lived in both sure. places. Well, uh, one uh, addition. So I was actually born in New York, okay. which a lot of people assume because I talk fast and I'm Jewish. But um, I moved at the age of five to Baltimore. Oh, okay. And uh, I think the cities have uh, very different images of themselves. Um, Baltimore, especially when I grew up there, was a city that was really in turmoil. Uh, A lot of the major employers of the city, Bethlehem Steel, uh, Domino Sugar, was a big employer. Uh, there was a the Broning uh, car plant. I think a lot of the, if you remember, the minivans were made uh, by GM in Baltimore, and gotcha. those all moved out of the city. Uh, Domino's is still there. Oh, and um, if you used to visit the Inner Harbor in the 70s, you would remember the smell of cinnamon, and that's because McCormick uh, had their uh, spice plant downtown. Right. So I moved there in 1978, uh, and that was when William Donald Schaefer was mayor and was making a major effort to try to keep people in Baltimore and make Baltimore attractive. That's when the Inner Harbor Complex was built. 
Um, but Baltimore has a very working class image, um, but that has changed greatly, uh, partially because a lot of people were like my father, uh, commuting uh, from Baltimore to Washington. My dad, starting in 1980, took the Mark train. He was one of the pioneer Mark train commuters uh, every day to uh, his job, uh, actually, which is now a district building on North Capitol Street. Uh, and then and then they moved to First Street. Um, so I've seen uh, the city uh, of D.C. change a ton uh, from that time. I think Washington, at least I'll tell you the Baltimoreans' image of Washington, uh, was that um, Washingtonians were uh, saw themselves as a little bit more elite. Um, Washingtonians would call Baltimore country. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that uh, I will say that my image of myself, I see myself as a little bit of an underdog, champion of the working class, and probably my childhood in Baltimore has a lot to do with that. Now, um, certainly I uh, moved to Washington when uh, I graduated from college. Um, I had a, moved in and out for a few years and then permanently settled here. I think in 1998, um, but I've come to appreciate uh, Washington very much. But the cities are different. I'll, I'll, but I'll point out that uh, the biggest employ private employer in uh, Baltimore is Johns Hopkins, uh, the hospital and the university, and that's actually very similar to DC in that our largest private employer is Georgetown. Um, so the cities actually, I think, have become uh, more similar than different over these past 20 years. Right. The, the, the ones that get me is that Baltimore has much more diverse architecture because it was it did have more of an industrial background than D.C. did. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I always appreciate that. And also that the ethnic neighborhoods that the D.C. is unlike a lot of other East Coast cities that that there, there are some, you know, uh, areas where you see Italian bakeries and, and things like that. You know, Swamp Poodle was Irish, but. Baltimore has has much more of that ethnic uh, neighborhood flavor. Well, um, I would say that Baltimore um, retained um, more of a white working class, and a lot of that was due to uh, the port of Baltimore. As I said, a lot of the big employers, uh, blue-collar employers, did leave, but the port remained fairly busy until Norfolk uh, expanded their port. Norfolk, Virginia is now the largest port in the um, East Coast, but um, there were a lot of people who worked in, in that industry, longshoremen and so forth. And so there is a little bit more uh, of a, you know, white ethnic working class that still lives in Baltimore, uh, although that's that's changed over these years too. Baltimore has, a, when I was a kid, didn't have a big uh, Hispanic community. Now there's a large Latino community in, in Baltimore. Um, didn't have that large an Asian community. They were largely outside in the burbs, kind of like here. Um, but, you know, I think the things about there, there also were a lot of commonalities between Baltimore and Washington. Like I grew up an Orioles fan, uh, like many Washingtonians did, and that was a big controversy because when Edward Bennett Williams, who was, I believe, a Williams and Connolly lawyer, bought the uh, Orioles, everyone thought he was going to move the team to Washington and he was going to turn it into a very Washingtonian team. Um, he didn't, of course. Now, a lot of old school Baltimore people think that Camden Yards might be a little too tony. It didn't have like the great um, 
sort of theatrics of um, Memorial Stadium did. And longtime Orioles fans who are Washingtonians will remember going to Memorial Stadium. And you had Section 34 with Wild Bill Hagee. I mean, if anyone kind of epitomized Baltimore, it was this guy who was the biggest fan the Orioles had. He was a cab driver who would do these great theatrics. At the games, he would spell out Orioles, O-R-I-O-L-E-S, and there was, of course, that was the era of Orioles magic. I can go on and on about the <laughs> Orioles, but I've become a Nationals fan. Um, you know, I am very excited about the Nationals' new season. Um, today, in fact, there's a great story I'm excited about. I, w- I like Dusty Baker a ton, um, but I'm excited about um, Dave Martinez, our new manager, and I'm really excited that he seems to be an out-of-the-box thinker, because I love out-of-the-box thinkers. and. Uh, So he brought uh, camels, apparently, to spring training because he because as we all know, it's been a little frustrating in the playoffs that the Nationals haven't been able to advance. And so in order to get over the hump, he brought a bunch of camels to practice, which I think is like an awesome idea. Where where does one rent a camel? Apparently in that. So the Nats have a new practice facility. Uh, in West Palm Beach, and I believe that there were some camel, um, per, they're not purveyors, but they're uh, people who have camels in that area. Okay, and were these dockless camels, or were these ones that you had to return to stands? We're, we're having this issue with dockless bikes in D.C., and I don't I wonder if camels work the same way. camels. At one hump or two? Uh, I'll have to go to the videotape. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll go to the videotape a little Warner Wolf, uh, George Michael action there. Um, I know you're also a, a music fan. When mm. uh, when news uh, broke that the council was going to have a radio show at DC Radio, one of the things you were most excited about was the, the DC music program. Yes. Talk a little bit about your interest in local music. What, oh. are, what are your favorites and how'd you get into it and uh, hmm. that kind of thing? And, well, I, I certainly am a music lover. As I said, I, I moved to Washington in uh, the, uh, let's see, 1998, the late 90s. Um, and so, uh, and, I, and I lived in Mount Pleasant. Um, and one, it, it's funny you ask this, Josh, because I was just at a party of some of um, housemates from that era, and they played Tuscadero. Do you, do you know Tuscadero? I know the name, but not so the music. They, it was a, it was a um, I don't know if they were a punk band, but uh, but they had a song called Mount Pleasant. And I hadn't heard this song. It's It, it, it goes, oh gosh, I can't think of how it goes right now because uh, I'm nervous here. But it was a big song. It was played at like every house party that we had. But of course, I mean, Fugazi uh, being one of the biggest bands and Bad Brains. And, you know, I sort of saw Ian Mackay and Fugazi at the end of their uh were playing regularly and that's when you would go to places like the church at 15th and Irving you know had basement shows and that was like the era of positive force um and I worked for the city paper at that time and a lot of folks who uh worked for the city paper were also in bands like Velocity Girl which was a a a bunch of folks who went to uh, University of Maryland College Park um, who worked for the city paper um, were in Velocity Girl and uh, you can still hear their songs played on the radio occasionally Um, but but that was so of course the punk scene is very well known in DC but then I also was exposed to go-go 
Um, and I remember going to actually going to see some go-go shows in the Reeves Center. There used to be a um, restaurant. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the Reeves Center. It was crazy. And it had all this furniture that looked like out of Pier 1 Imports. Um, it was all of this, like, wicker furniture. And uh, go-go bands used to play there, I think, on Friday nights. And they had a happy hour. So that was really fun. Um my my uh, secret go-go shame is I did see Chuck Brown live at the Barnes at Wolf Trap. <laughs> and it's like one of those good news, bad news things you used to do back in elementary school. I'm glad that I got to see him, but I'm guessing the Barnes experience was not, uh, Probably not, not the, the ideal same. way yeah. to see, uh, see Chuck. Not the same as Ibex, perhaps. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yes, uh, you know, I'm... I, I, Working at City Paper, I uh, met a lot of people who were either in bands or had a very big in interest in music, music writers, you know. Um, for example, when I was there, Ta-Nehisi Coates worked there, and everyone knows Ta-Nehisi now from his books, right. uh, from Black Panther, but he wrote music reviews uh, for um, the City Paper at that time. Uh, and there are some other uh, fairly big name folks who were music writers for City Paper then too. So it gave me an appreciation, especially of our local music scene. Yeah, the City Paper is sort of a crazy uh, star factory that when you think uh, Jake Tapper and Mike DeBonis, yourself, uh, mm. you well, know, for I a, would a, put myself in a different category <laughs> there. But yeah, I mean, it was actually an amazing time to be at City Paper. I, I feel. Um, there, there's a book being there uh, that could turn into a movie, and I sort of feel like my life is a little bit like that um, because when I look back, uh, even growing up in Baltimore, um, so my uh, middle school classmates uh, included Jada Pinkett Smith. So Jada sat next to me um, in Algebra two class, and and she was um, she she was beautiful even in middle school um no one is beautiful in middle school let's she let's was make that she clear. was and okay, um, you know, i went to public rule. schools um and uh and then that was a, a time when people were largely leaving the public schools especially middle class families so similar issues to what we deal with at the council but i remember jada um she dated this guy michael ryan and it was an interracial relationship michael was a white white guy and, uh, you know, I often, some of my friends with, because I'm from Baltimore, so I'm still in touch with a lot of the people that I uh, grew up with, we, we always think, what is Michael Ryan doing now? You know, like, can he go see a Jada Pinkett Smith movie? Right. Um, but other amazing people I went to school with are the mayor of Baltimore, um, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake. She and I were uh, tennis team partners in high school. Stephanie was, one of us is older than the other, I won't say who, but... Um, we played double. We were doubles tennis partners, and uh, Jennifer Richardson, who is actually Dr. Jennifer Richardson, uh, who I went to middle school and high school with, uh, is a MacArthur Genius grantee um, and does actually very significant work on race and sociology. Um, so, uh, so yeah. And then, as you said, City Paper, like the amazing um, stars that I worked with there, um, David Carr, you know. Right. primary among them and it's it's so sad to think David is not with us anymore you know he went on from um, the city paper to become a very noted writer at the New York Times wrote a book 
about his amazing journey. Um, of course, Jake Tapper, uh, many people who work for The Post, Anna Shin, Eric Wemple, um, Ta-Nehisi. Um, it's really a, quite, a, quite an amazing group. Gotcha. Now, you are, I think... And then me. I don't know how yeah, I hey. ended up there. <laughs> Uh, I think you're fairly unique. I think only Kathy Patterson is the only other person who came from a journalism background onto the council. Hmm. How do you think that sets you up uh, for being a council member? I'm fascinated with how the backgrounds people come from. Some people are ANC commissioners, then council members. Some are council staffers and then council members. You're one of the few that brings journalism skills. Mm. And I'm just wondering how that that helps you, how that hurts you, if it hurts you at all. Well, I think when I first joined the council, a lot of people still thought I was a reporter. (laughs) So they are very guarded about (laughs) what they Well, you are even in the studio wearing one of those 1920 hats with the little press uh, tag set in it. to all the listeners out there. I don't wear too many hats, actually. Radio's no fun. Um, so I think that it's a skill set that is very similar. Um, so when you're a journalist, you're interested in learning about people. Um, you're interested in public policy, uh, how it's implemented, um, doing, you know, looking at doing oversight. I mean, really, reporters are, are doing oversight. I think the difference in why I ended up making that leap from being a reporter to being um, a politician is that uh, you stop at the um, solution. You can come up with solutions, but you can't implement them. Uh, and I, um, I had an interim career um, in between. But uh, what I find really gratifying about being um, a uh, council member is that we can try to fix problems. So certainly um, the fourth estate journalists are, are key. I always tell my former colleagues, um, many of whom are friends, um, you are critical to making our government work. You are a partner in helping uh, us make um, government work better for and improve the lives of our residents. And without you, who can amplify sort of what's going on, uh, I couldn't do some of the reform efforts that um, that I want to do because what uh, reporters do and what newspapers and, and broadcast media do is they shed light on issues and they bring public attention to areas of concern uh, and they are able to sort of build a constituency for reform uh, through through their work. Now being a former Loose Lips, does, do you think that sets you up better to deal with a current loose lips? Does that, or do you, you kind of know uh, the angles they'll come from, the tools they'll use so you can uh, so, respond and parry uh, if necessary? Or So journalism has changed uh, a lot since I left uh, the Washington Post in 2009, right. which is not even a decade. Uh, but the 24-hour news cycle, social media is just a complete game changer. Uh, you know, when I uh, left the Post, so I was loose lips from 2002 to 2004, and then I was at the Post from 2005 to 2009. I mean, we were still figuring out how to put stories online when I left the Post. Um, so loose lips is it's a, it's a different job than um, than when I had that job. But what I would say is, and here's my plug in case Andrew Jambroni is, in, is listening, is that I think what there's a real need for 
great analysis, great political analysis. So with social media and with Twitter, everyone knows the breaking news, right? Right. But what uh, I think Loose Lips does or can do is connect the dots, right? Is to tell you what's really going on. Because you might learn this thing from Twitter and this thing from Facebook and the post is a daily paper, so they'll tell you this story. But what is really needed, in my opinion, is somebody who can put all this together and tell district residents, here's what's going on, here's why this happened, and here's what to make of it, uh, and here are the significant forces at play. Uh, and, and that's what I think Loose Lips can do that no one else can do. Yeah, I, I don't know if I really answered your question. No, no, it, it's it's the difference between making news and following the news. That if you're just following the news and just reporting what happens, that's one kind of news. But when you look at what WAMU and NPR did with the absenteeism, there was no news there. They took data and they, in studying it, they discovered the news. They, the news wasn't presented to them. They discovered well, the story and they, that that was yeah, marvelous but they i took think a that's... story which was um you know an incredible achievement at Baloo um to have all of the graduating class apply and get into college and say well that's really remarkable so here's what i often tell my staff and people are very frustrated about what news is right and david carr had a great uh, explanation of what news is. He would say, New- news is not planes landing safely at National Airport. News is when they crash. And that's true. News is something that is unusual, uh, is surprising. Surprising and unusual is what news is. And so the Baloo story um, was unusual and surprising. And then I think what, and usually when something's unusual and surprising, a good investigative reporter will say, well, why did that happen? And I think that's what um, Kate McGee at WMU did is say, okay, well, let me understand how this happened. How, how did how did we go from um, being a, a school that didn't have a high success rate of getting folks into college to one that got 100%? Uh, I want to take a look at this further. And as I as we talked about before, Josh, that's what we do on the council too. Um, you know, we take a look and, and sort of peel back the onion. Um, so it's a form of oversight, and you know what we discovered is that there were um, policies that weren't followed and inflated um, graduation rates uh, that has led to, I think, a real um, good thing, which is that we need to take a much better, we need to have accurate data. Uh, and we need to be honest with ourselves um, because we don't serve our kids. And I can speak to this as labor and workforce development chair uh, when they're not prepared, uh, not only for the workforce, but for life. Um, a lot of this showing up on time is the number one habit that employers say is missing from a lot of our job seekers. And so I and, kind and of the make council it- does not model well on that front. No, we don't, and uh, I even break that rule myself. Um, but it, but the thing is, uh, I can be late to a council breakfast, but if you are a nurse 
who needs to be in the ER at Washington Hospital Center, you can't show up at 710. You got to be there at seven o'clock. Or, you know, if you are working at a hotel uh, and you're a front desk person, you can't leave the front desk empty. So um, a lot of our a lot of our high demand industry sectors are in customer facing work like our as we talked about our hospitals they are tremendous employers for us our hospitality industry you're talking about not only restaurants but hotels tremendous industry for us and these are things where you've got to be there in person you got to be there on time yeah yeah i think it's there's a big difference between um getting employed and being someone who is well-placed to be employed, someone who understands what is needed in a workplace uh, in terms of timeliness and behavior and, and wardrobe. And that's, that's a big these, learning curve. These are the, what they, some people call them soft skills, some people call them essential skills, some call them 21st century skills. But I can tell you that uh, these habits, I think they're habits that some of us learn when we're young and obviously habits are easier to form when they're young and breaking bad habits is hard to do, especially when you're an adult. Uh, but forming these habits is critical, as I said, not only for being a good employee, but for being a good parent, uh, for being a good adult child of a parent, um, having uh, some structure in place um, to help you get through challenging moments, uh, to get the things you need to get done every day are really critical. And that's why, as labor chair, one of the things I've looked at is our summer youth employment program and how we can embed more of those life skills into that program because I think if we can get those life skills down when we're young then it serves us a lot better when we get older gotcha something else I've noticed about your about how you present yourself as a council member is your family is very present in, oh, yes. in, in talking about your life in a way that I feel like is not true for a lot of the other council members talk a little bit about I feel like you're you're a team like I feel <laughs> like you know uh, you're, you're all kind of active uh, down, down to uh, is it Usman? Is that oh yeah, my cat. The cat. Yeah. Oh, um, so yeah. tell me a little He's bit about, the, friend, uh, about the, the team, the team, and the mascot. Well, unlike everyone else, he doesn't talk back to me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I am a very family-oriented person. As I said, uh, my fam, my my immediate family lives here. My brother lives is a district resident in Ward Three. Um, my mom and dad still live in Baltimore. And if they're listening to this, uh, I, once again, I I've encouraged them. All my uh, office has encouraged them. Many of my friends have encouraged them to move to Washington. It's a little ironic that after my dad commuted for 38 years um, that, that in retirement he would move to D.C., but we all want them here. Uh, I'd love if they lived here. But, um, you know, I'm very close to my family, um, and uh, they have really been critical in helping me get to this place. I mean, I I think of myself a little bit as the accident. There was a book, that a great writer um, from Baltimore is Ann Tyler. She wrote a lot of... Um, she writes a lot of mysteries. She still does. Uh, and there was one really famous uh, book that she turned into a movie called The Accidental Taurus. William Hurt was in it. And Gina Davis uh, got filmed right in my neighborhood in Baltimore. And um, I think of myself as the accidental council member. So The Accidental Taurus was the, William Hurt played this guy who uh, wrote all these travel books and he never left his house. Um, and I feel like the council member who should have never become a council member. Uh, a lot of my colleagues, I think, planned careers and 
uh, being a politician. A lot of them were um, staff members for council members. You know, I, I'm still shocked sometimes. And uh, you know, my friends were talking about like the Mount Pleasant crowd. You know, I lived in group houses in Mount Pleasant, and none of my friends would ever thought. I would be a council member. In fact, occasionally they've come with me to some, uh, I remember one of my housemates who lives in Petworth now with her husband and kids. Uh, we went to a event for Mary Center together because she knows Maria Gomez from Mary Center. And somebody said, council member Silverman. And um, I turned around and my friend just started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of what we do in life is applies to all of us is, if you, to a certain degree, you feel like you're playing grown up. You know, it's everyone around you thinks you're doing your job, but you're. It's all. It, we're all just kind of doing the best we can to to, oh, to get our jobs done, and it's just we'll rise to the challenges as they're put in front of us. Yes. Um, so unfortunately, we are out of oh, time. Are you we we me? have a, a standard what? way of, of closing the show that we don't even have time for. So oh we're going to have gosh. to save that for your next visit. Well, this was lots of fun. Well, I, it we was didn't fun even get to I, like I, all I, my other things that I do. Like people might not know, I um, am a balloon twister. I'm trying to become much better at that. Um, what are the other things that people do? I think I, I, don't I know worked at Camden Yards counting money. Uh, to earn money for college. I'm trying to think of all the things people might not know about I'm, I'm not sure if balloon twisting and cat ownership are two skills that really overlap. But um, anyway, listeners, uh, thank you again for joining us. Tune in next time. We're uh, DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. Thanks, and I'll uh, talk to you next time.